Good morning, everybody. And I was just thinking, um, we still use the word amen around here? Amen. Uh, okay, there we go. Uh, if you've got a new word you'd like to use, please submit it. And, uh, and we'll see. I'm just joking. It's so good to see you uh, today. And I'm going to invite you, if you have a Bible or device, to turn to James and chapter 2, and we'll be there in just a moment. We are in a series called Living Out Your Faith in Relationships. And in the book of James, the letter of James, it's all about faith. And James writes to uh, fellow Christians, and he says, if you have a saving faith, it's going to be expressed in a living faith. That, that if your faith is in God, it's going to affect how you face setbacks and trials and loss and problems. If you have a faith in God, it's going to affect how you s struggle with and you fight against temptation. It's about faith. And in this six-week series, we are in week three, where we are looking at what a faith in God looks like in our relationships. Because James knows that if you have encountered the love of Jesus Christ in your life, it makes the biggest difference in your relationships. It changes how you relate to people. If you have a faith in Jesus and you experienced his love, you're going to find yourself learning to become a more, uh, learning to become a listening person because love listens to people, tries to understand people. If you have a love uh, from Jesus, it will change your heart so you will become, as we heard last week, a caring person. And then today, you will learn to become a welcoming person person. Being the person that God wants you to be, a welcoming person, it starts with how you see other people. Before we get to the whole idea about welcoming them and what that looks like and what that means, it's how you see other people. Because how you see other people affects how you treat other people. So I want to begin with these uh, questions asking you about your relationships. How do you see people that have a different skin color than you? How do you see people that speak a different language than you? How do you see people that are a different gender than you? How do you see people that are not like you? How do you see people maybe that are richer than you? Or poorer than you? How do you see people that are smarter than you? How do you see people that are less intelligent than you? How do you see people not like you? We live in an age where we see racism, where we see sexism, where we see classism, where we see people put in groups and they are mocked or they are rejected or they are shunned. And that treatment of people all goes back to how people see people. So today, as James talks to us about what a living faith in Jesus looks like as we, goes, we go through life, he's going to talk to us about learning to see people the right way so you treat them the right way. That I, if I've encountered Jesus, I'm going to see people not with a superior attitude, I'm not going to condescend to people, but rather I'm going to see them as valuable and significant. So James chapter 2, and if you can grab this one concept about how to see people and how that's possible in your life, it will help you to treat people the way they're supposed to be treated. 
So let's begin James chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. James writes this, My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. So if you're here today, you're a follower of Jesus, you're a Christian, you have a relationship with Jesus, you are not to show favoritism. You're not to favor some people at the expense of others. James takes the word for favoritism, he takes two Greek words, and he compounds them into one word. And the first one is to grab a hold of, and the second word is face. And he says, if you're a follower of Jesus, you don't grab a hold of the face of people. What does he mean by that? He means the idea here is that you don't focus on a person's face, on their external, that you don't base their value, their worth on the external. So if I see somebody and they look different or they act different or they talk different and I say they're less than me, they're not as good as me, they're not really important, then I am showing favoritism. I am, another word it could be translated is I'm prejudiced. I'm prejudging somebody. I'm being partial. And if you're a follower of Jesus, James says that's not good. You're not to do that. Why? Well, James could have said it's because favoritism divides community. It divides homes. It divides churches. It divides workplaces. Parents, if you want to raise healthy children, you do not want to favor one child over another. That leads to dysfunction. Read the book of Genesis. Uh, there's some people in their 20s, 30s, and 40s who still are struggling with the fact that their, one parent in their family favored another child over them. James could have said, you know, because when you favor, it's just not good. There's bad consequences. But he takes us to a higher purpose, a higher reason, and he connects it to, notice there, our glorious Lord Jesus Christ that favoring and looking down on certain people and thinking people are less than, it, it doesn't fit. It's incompatible with the Jesus that we're following. And James, again, he was the half-brother of Jesus. He knew Jesus. He knew what Jesus was like. He knew that Jesus, when he went throughout his time here on earth, he didn't favor one group over another group. That's why when you read in your Bibles about Jesus, you see that he actually values the woman caught in adultery. He values the rich Pharisee. He values the lepers. He values all people. He valued the Samaritans. Jews didn't do that in that day. So if you're a follower of Jesus, you're not to show favoritism because Jesus didn't. That's not who he is. That's not what he is about. And so James, after he gives, gives this command, he then addresses the problem because racism and sexism and classism is nothing new. The early church struggled with it. So he goes on to illustrate. He says, verse 2, suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes. So suppose a man comes into our meeting, our gathering, our worship here on Sunday morning, and they're wearing a gold ring. It kind of means a gold-fingered man. Do you got any gold-fingered men or women here? Okay. James has an idea here that they're shiny. In that day, there was no middle class. You were either rich or you were poor. And if you were rich in an honor-shame culture, you wanted to make sure people knew you were rich. So you would dress up, you were shiny. So he says, if a man comes in very shiny, 
to your congregation, and then another person comes in. Notice what he says, and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. So here's a poor person. In that day, they didn't have uh, hardly anything. They were shabby. They probably had an odor, probably maybe like a homeless person. And that person comes in. So you get two people coming into your midst as followers of Jesus. He goes on to say, if you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? When you come into your gathering and you grab a hold of a rich man's external and you say, you have value, you have worth, and then you grab a hold of the face of the poor man and say, you don't really matter, you're insignificant, he says, you're showing favoritism, and he says, it's evil, it's wrong, you have evil thoughts, because you're setting yourself up in the judge's seat to say, you matter and you don't matter. Now, the word discriminate is a morally neutral word, term. Um, there is a positive sense. If two people apply for a job and one has all the credentials and meets the requirements and another person doesn't, then I, the person, you, as an employer, you want to discriminate. You want to uh, differentiate. But that's not how James uses the term here. He uses it in a, to speak to the morally repugnant practice of judging people based on what they look like. So, Woodside, how are we doing? Okay. James is not saying that you can't dress up for church. Uh, anybody wearing a suit and tie? Come on now. Okay, sorry. We used to wear suits and ties. Anybody wearing a dress, lady? Okay, dress. Okay. It's, he's not saying don't dress up. He's not saying, hey, if anybody's rich, make sure you shun them. No, it's not about being rich or about being poor. He's not saying that. He's not saying that you don't give honor to, to whom honor is due, right? If Queen Elizabeth, while she was still alive, came and said, you know what, I want to attend Woodside for Sunday, uh, we wouldn't say to, to, to her, hey, Liz, grab a seat anywhere over there. Yeah. No, you, you give honor to whom honor is due. What he is saying is you don't treat one person this way and another person another way. You welcome everyone. Because James knew that as a follower of Jesus, Jesus welcomed everyone. He welcomed people that didn't agree with him, didn't believe what he believed. Jesus went around welcoming, knowing that every single person is made in the image of God. And because of that, every single person has value and dignity and worth. And Jesus also knew that he came for God so loved the world, he gave his only son. He came for all people. Jesus, when he died on a cross, that's the best symbol of a welcoming person. His arms were out. I welcome you. A welcoming person doesn't mean you go around and saying, hey, you know what? Whatever you do in life is okay. You know, what you just own truth and all of that. No, but it does mean my heart is open to people. And I want to be, I want to see them the right way. You know, I um, uh, recently saw a man, and I, I don't, again, nothing about someone covered in de tattoos, but I saw a guy, and his whole body was tattoos. Like, face, everything was tattoos, and then piercings everywhere. And I got to admit, I was a little jarred by just the, seeing that person. But did you know that person? 
is made in the image of God and is a valuable person to God. And for me to look at a person that maybe doesn't look like me and say, oh, look at you, that's not good. And James says, you don't do that. Can I just stop for a moment and say, why is it that we often kind of are prone to treating shiny people in a certain way and shabby people in a different way? Because it really reveals a lack of faith insecurity because a shiny person, we kind of cuddle up to them or we kind of uh, fawn over them, hoping that some of that shininess kind of rubs off on me, some of the power, wealth, popularity that they have. You know, I want some of that. The shabby person, why would I ever want to give time and attention to that person? They can't benefit me. As a follower of Jesus, I don't distinguish between the two. I'm secure in who I am in Jesus that I don't need any power and money from anybody. And I can also, for the person that can't repay, I can go and sit with them at the lunch table at school or I in the workplace when everybody else is mocking a certain person. I don't do that because I see everybody the way God sees them. Now we ask the question, how do we see how God sees people? James says, you see the rich person this way, and you see the poor person this way. That's not how God sees it. Now, before we go on to what James says about how God sees, let's look at Scripture. And there's one particular verse in Scripture that talks about how God sees people. And it's in 1 Samuel 16 and verse 7, where we read, the Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So in other words, to God... He doesn't like rich people more than he likes poor people. He doesn't like white people more than he likes Asian people or Hispanic people. He doesn't like educated people more than uneducated people. He doesn't look at any of that. He values all people. He doesn't look at the external. He doesn't grab hold of people's faces. And we see this all through Scripture. Deuteronomy 10, Moses said uh, that, that our God, he's a father to the fatherless, to the, to the widow, to the foreigner, and he shows no partiality, no favoritism. Paul in Romans 2, God shows no favoritism. Peter, Acts chapter 10, I've learned that God shows no favoritism. So when God sees people, he doesn't look at the external. That's how he sees it. And so James brings that to his readers. Verse 5, listen, my dear friends and sisters. Again, he's appealing to people that know Jesus. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world and to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. He says to them, wait a second, this poor guy comes in and instead of treating him with respect, you, you shove him in the corner or you say, go sit on the floor. But don't you know that's the the guy, the poor guy, that has a relationship with God, that he has inherited the kingdom. He loves God. Here's the thing about being rich and poor. When I'm a a poor, poor, poor person, they have need. And when a poor person has need, it causes them or can cause them to look to God, to save them, to help them, to deliver them. A rich person, on the other hand, has riches and can cause them not to need God. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Not the poor. He says, blessed are the poor, not financially, but the poor in spirit, where they say, 
I need God. And sometimes it's the poor that realize that. Jesus said it's, it's very hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. In heaven, there's going to be people that were rich on earth and people that were poor on earth. That whether rich or poor doesn't matter. It was their heart. The person that's rich or the person that's poor. If they're poor in spirit, theirs is the kingdom of God. Again, James is drawing our attention to, to the external stuff doesn't matter with God. It's, it's, it's our hearts. We look at the external, God looks at our hearts. And James says, you've dishonored this poor guy by shoving him in the corner, and then the rich guy, you're all captivated by his shine, and you're just like fawning over him, and like, wow. And I said this in the first service. This wasn't my sermon notes, but can I just share one? Well, I will share one thing that has baffled me for years, is why do people just fawn over celebrities and, and a musician and an athlete. Again, if there's honor, hey, great song. You got a billion listens on Spotify, great. But we're not like, oh, do you know why we do that? People do that? Because we were made to worship. And if we don't worship God, we're going to worship a fallen human being, right? I don't fawn over anybody. I want to honor them. And on the other hand, I don't reduce or devalue anybody. Everybody's the same in God's so he says, the poor man, you're shoving him over there, and you're captivated by the rich man. And he goes on to say, let's do the math. Verse 6, is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? Now, we'll look at this in a couple of weeks when we talk about the rich landowners. Again, there was no middle class who took advantage of the poor. The people with power took advantage of those that had less, um, that were in need. But he says here, the guy that you're captivated by, he's not a person that loves people. He oppresses people. He's not a person that honors God. He dishonors the name of the one you're following. And then he says this to them. So you're seeing people the wrong way. And then he says, here's a reminder of what you're called to. Verse 8. If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. The kingdom of God, the rule of God, is a kingdom of love. What is a Christian? A Christian is all about love. Loving God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving my neighbor as myself. And those two go together. You can't separate them. You can't say, I love God, and not love people. You love God by loving people. And James reminds them, and he reminds you and me, hey, you love your neighbor that's different than you. You love your neighbor that has a different skin color. You love your neighbor that looks different than you. You love your neighbor who's, who believes things that are different from you. You love your neighbor who's not acting in a way that you approve of. You love your neighbor. If you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, you may have heard... Uh, that, oh, if you become a Christian, then you, you have to, then you don't love certain people. That's the exact opposite of the kingdom of God, of what Jesus is about. It's loving Jesus that causes us to love our neighbors, all of our neighbors. The ethic of the kingdom of God is love. And so James says love. And here's what's the exciting part. 
James wrote this about 20 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And, and those first followers of Jesus, the, the thinking of the world was in them. I'm going to look at how, how you look and you're valuable, you're not valuable. I'm going to treat you this way and not this way. And they took what James said. They took what Peter said and Paul said. Paul said it this way. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave or free, male or female. We're all one in Christ Jesus. In other words, because of Jesus and what he came to do, there's no distinctions. We're all equal. We're all loved by him. And so this early church, if you look at history, they actually loved their neighbor as themselves. And you will find, and I've mentioned books before. Here's three great books if you want to know a little bit of, of history in the early church. The first one is by Rodney Stark called The Triumph of Christianity. The second one is Alvin Schmidt, How Christianity Changed the World. And the third is by Tom Holland, not a Christian, called Dominion. And they all talk about how these first followers of Jesus went and loved their neighbor. Why was it in the Roman Empire when males were superior to females? 2,000 years ago, women... We're just a little above cattle. That's how they were treated. Why was it that women flocked to the early church? Because they were equal. In the Roman Empire, if you were free or if you were a slave, huge difference. If you were a slave, you were mistreated. You didn't have any really too many rights. Why was it that slaves flocked to the early church? because they were equal. Why was it in the early church that people that weren't Jews flocked to the early church? Because all races are equal. In that day, if you were a Greek, you looked down on anybody that was a non-Greek. They were called barbarians, barbar. They spoke oddly and they were unintelligent. Oh, you're not Greek. The Jews, they looked down on the Greeks. Oh, you're Greek. But yet in the early church, all the races would come together because these first followers of Jesus loved all of their neighbors. You know, today, uh, as we look at history, Christianity is the most multiracial, multiethnic movement in all of history. Why is that? Because God loves all people. He sees them all the same way. And he invites all of us into a relationship with him. So re, uh, there's a book called um, Sapiens, A Brief History of, of Humankind. It's written by an atheist. You've all know Harari. He's, he's a New York Times bestseller. And he's looking at history. And it's a fascinating book. He talks about human beings and fire. He talks about agriculture and how wheat influenced us. And he talks about human languages. Very interesting book. He dismisses God. The arguments, many will say, are trite. And they're not justified. But he makes this really good point. He says, as you look at human history, this whole idea of equality and human rights that we hear on the news all the time, equality, human rights, he said it didn't come, it doesn't come from our biology. In other words, just because we're human, you can't find some body part that says I'm equal or I have rights. He says you can find a heart, you can find a kidney, but you can't find that. And he says, where did that invention come from? We had to invent this idea of equality and human rights. And he said, it came from the Christians. Because those first Christians went around saying, we're all equal in God's sight. You're all welcome. God wants a relationship with all of you. And today, it's interesting, we want to push God out of our culture, out of our community. 
But friends, when we get a secular worldview, an atheistic worldview, there's no such thing as human rights. Look at North Korea. Look at, at Afghanistan. You could, it's just what everybody wants to believe. But there's a God who created us equal, a God who says every single being has human rights. If you're Christians, go and love your neighbor as yourself. And friends, that's the call in you and me, and it's hard. How do we love someone different? And, and uh, again, as Jesus, he didn't approve of everything that people did, but his arms were always open to people. He always wanted to welcome them and invite them to follow him. And we may be here and say, well, you know, if I'm prejudiced against this group or that person, it's not a big deal. James addresses that. He says in verse 9, but if you show favoritism, you grab a hold of someone's face and you make a judgment and say, you're less than, you're insignificant, you're not as good as me. But if you show favoritism, you sin. Racism, sexism, classism is not simply a social problem. It is a sin problem. And that's why I believe that we can pass all the laws we want to. We need to press for good laws. But we can pass all the laws that we want to. But laws won't touch the human heart. Until God gets a hold of someone's heart, that's when they change. He says, but if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said you shall not commit adultery also said you shall not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. James is not saying all sins are the same because if, if you show favoritism, it's, it's, not maybe, it's not as bad as murdering, but you're still a lawbreaker. You still sin. You can't be selective and say, well, I don't commit adultery and I don't murder, but I am prejudiced against these people. You can't do that. He says you're a lawbreaker. You're guilty of breaking the law. And notice in verse 11, he says, he, who's the he? The moral law giver. So you're not simply breaking a moral law, but you are sinning against the moral law giver. You're saying to God, well, I know you made those people, but I have a different attitude towards them. And I know for myself, uh, I've been convicted on this. In my, as I grew up and later uh, in the business world in particular, but I had a certain prejudice against a certain type of person, type, kind of person. And uh, uh, I was married at the time, or I still am married, and um, <laughs> for life. Um, but my wife has reminded me more than once, that's not how Jesus sees them. That's not how he loves them. And I was convicted. And I'm in a better place than I used to be because prejudice is a sin. James goes on to say, verse 12, speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. There's a day that you're going to stand before Jesus, if you're a follower of Jesus, and he's going to reward you. It's the judgment seat of Christ that we find in 2 Corinthians 5. You're not going to be at the great white throne judgment in Revelation 20, but there's a day coming that Jesus is going to open the books and see how you live because it matters how you live, and he's going to reward you for living for him. And it's also going to be a time of a loss of reward. It's not going to be a time that we fear and dread. When I became a Christian, when I put my faith in Jesus Christ, if you're saved, at that moment, your relationship to the law changed. The law is no longer threatening to you. It's not like, oh, I've sinned, or oh, I said that bad word. Oh, no, is God going to get me? No, all of your sins were covered on the cross by the blood of Jesus. 
So the law in that day is not threatening. But you don't discard the law and say, well, Jesus saved me. I can live how I want to be. No, you have a different relationship. You don't see the law as threatening, but you see it as liberating. The law that leads to freedom. The more that I can obey Jesus and his word, instead of what culture says, oh, if you follow the word of God, the Bible, I mean, it's so restrictive. Don't you know freedom is throwing off all restraint? You throw off all restraint, you will not be free. You'll be enslaved to sin. When you obey, it leads to freedom. You become free from prejudice, free from anger, free from low self-esteem, free from all the things, and you become more and more who God wants you to be. So James says, listen, speak and act, knowing there's an eternity to come. And we should anticipate it. God is going to be so gracious. And then he says, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful, not teaching salvation by works, but again saying, if I don't show mercy to people, it gives evidence that I haven't received the mercy of God. And then he says this, mercy triumphs over judgment. Judgment, I deserve judgment for my sins, but mercy triumphs over that. Again, if you're new to the Bible, you'll find that God's love, he's a God of love, and it's expressed in his mercy and his grace. And mercy means not getting what I deserve. I'm a sinner, and I deserve judgment, but I'm not going to get that because I put my faith in what Jesus did for me on the cross. Grace is getting what I don't deserve. I don't deserve to be in heaven. I don't deserve to be a recipient of God's inexhaustible supply of goodness for all eternity, his mercy and his grace. And notice the the statement, mercy triumphs over judgment. I don't know about you, but when you understand that, I want to dance. God's mercy, there's more mercy in him than there's sin in me. His mercy triumphs over the judgment that I deserve. James says to us, if you're a follower of Jesus, don't show favoritism. It's not today for you to go out and say, okay, I'm not going to favor anybody at the expense of others. I'm going to do my best to, to see people the right way. The Christian faith is not start with becoming. It starts with beholding. Again, look at how that command is framed. Verse 1, my brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, must not show favoritism. If you want to rid yourself of prejudice, you want to get rid of that poison in your heart, you behold our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, you see that in your Bible? He rules over all. He's sovereign over all. Every day you listen to people on the radio or TV or you, uh, Spotify, wherever you listen, wherever you're at school, you hear people telling you how life is and, and what life's all about. All of those voices are, will one day be silent. 
the one who rules over all. He has a rightful rule because he's our creator. The one who rules over all is Jesus. He's not just Lord, but he is Christ. He's the one, the anointed one, the promised one, the Messiah. Christmas is coming, and we're going to celebrate his coming into our world. He is the one that entered into human history so he could die on a cross for us. He's Jesus of Nazareth. He's Lord, and he's Christ. But notice this. He's our glorious Lord, Jesus Christ. Glory is weight, is beauty. In other words, if you want to stop showing favoritism, you behold the glorious one, the shiny one. That's who he is. We sometimes give glory to someone in a position when they put on a uniform and we give them weight. That's called ascribed glory. Jesus has inherent glory. And when you behold and you're captivated by him and how he sees you and how he treats you, you're not captivated by lesser things. You're not like going around making judgments. Can I encourage you this week, if you're a follower of Jesus, to somewhere, sometime this week, get on your knees or in a chair and say, Jesus, help me to see people the way you see me that you would remind yourself of his mercy shown to you, that you're not going to get what you deserve so that you can show that mercy to other people who don't deserve it. Help me, Lord Jesus, to see your grace to me. I don't deserve to go to heaven forever. I'm not fearing death. I'm looking forward to it. Oh, thank you for that. Help me to show, see how much grace you've shown to me so that I can be gracious to people, even people that aren't like me and don't deserve it. So I want to ask you today, are you grabbing hold of people's faces and making judgments and saying, you're better than this person, or you're less than that person, or, or are you seeing people the way Jesus sees people? Because the way you see people affects the way you will treat people. So I'm going to invite you at this time uh, to, if you'd like to bow your heads, and let's take a time here where we respond to prejudice and to favoritism. John says there's coming a day in your future as a follower of Jesus Christ when you will be gathered around the throne with people from every tribe and nation and language. And that not one person there will be there because of their skin color, because of their intelligence, because they had it all together. Every single person there will be, be there because of his mercy and his grace. So today, if you need to confess a prejudice or you're viewing people the wrong way, would you say, God, help me to see people the way you see people. Help me to treat people the way you treat people. Heavenly Father, I pray for our church family here at Woodside. 
And first, Lord, we want to say we are grateful to you that there is more grace and mercy in you than there is sin in us. We thank you that we are forgiven of all our sins. We thank you that we have a wonderful future. And Lord, help us as a church family to be captivated more and more by you and your glory so that we won't be captivated by lesser glories. Lord, help us as a church family to reach out to this world where there's so many divisions and so many people that think they're better than somebody else. Help us to display you, Lord, to these people. I pray that for your glory, their good, and our good as well. And I pray this in your name. Amen.